I just think you learn, especially when you get older, that, you know, life requires grace. Relationships require grace. You know, you require grace to your, you know, you should be required to give grace to yourself. Because there's times when I make drawings and make things that I don't love. And I have to be able to tell myself, it's okay, you're still, you know, learning. That never ends. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. Each week, I chat with artists who use print-based media to do something beyond the expected. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Gilesombrano. Together, we speak to printmakers around the globe about their practice and passions in the world of printmaking. Hello Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been a leading innovator and manufacturer of printing products for over 50 years. Speedball's speed screens answer the call to have an easy-to-use way to screen print, no matter your experience level. Whether printing at home, studio, or classroom, these ready-to-use mesh screens allow you to create permanent photographic stencils without the need to mix emotions or coat a screen. All you need is your design and you're ready to print. Pick up the Speed Screens kit for the most affordable way to get all the materials necessary to print your next masterpiece. There's a link in the show notes. My guest this week is Rashan Rutker. We talk about his early childhood influences, watching wrestling with his grandparents, and making championship belts for the whole neighborhood, discovering the iconography of pigeons while walking down the sidewalk, his love of educating viewers about his work, and making artwork that is now sitting in the Smithsonian from the sofa in his living room. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to spread your wings with Rashan Rutger. Hi, Rashan. How's it going? Hi, Miranda. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for making some time to chat with me in your busy day, working artist, full-time dad, all of that. Um, I've really really had you on my wish list to talk to for quite some time so I'm really excited for our chat. Oh I'm honored to be here. Yeah so before we dive into the questions I got for you and start chatting about your practice and your life would you mind introducing yourself and just letting people know who you are where you are and what you do? Uh, I'm Rashawn Rucker. Um, I guess I would consider myself a, a mid-career artist. I'm uh-huh. in my movies, and um, I'm a printmaker, a photographer, and a draftsman, and I'm in Detroit, and that's kind of what my life is. Mm-hmm. And where did you grow up, and what role did art play in that part of your life? I grew up in North Carolina. You know, I grew up in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and um, I don't know. I was, I think, I was blessed to be one of those people that kind of found art early in life and realized that it was my passion. Mm. And I think that was always my avenue to kind of see the world. You know, I knew from an early age I want to go to college. I want to get out of the neighborhood. And, you know, by the time I was five or six and I was drawing a lot and doing, you know, just my own little artwork, it was like, okay, this is going to be my, you know, my my avenue to explore, you know, and traverse the country like I want to. Yeah. And so like from from really early on, you were kind of seeing um, I've had a lot of guests talk about like how they got a lot of positive attention from having art skills as a young kid and kind of realizing that 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 was a way to 
be someone sort of special in the world or kind of to be recognized. Did you have that, you know, supportive, you know, like the, the kids at school liking what you do and folks liking what you do kind of young experience? It's funny that you say that because I don't think anybody's ever asked me that, but that's one of those things where I think that's the first thing that like kind of separates you from other kids. You know, and I remember being in school and they were like, man, you should see Rashawn. He can really draw Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. You know, yeah. Like Voltron, he made you're drawing stuff just like of that time. And, you know, and then kids, you know, I started having kids pay me like a dollar or two to like draw, you know, G.I. Joe's and little yeah. stuff. And then you start realizing like, I don't necessarily know what I have, but I know I have something that's like special because I know there's some other kids who might be great at sports or music or other things, but like, this is my thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, kind of figure that out just you know it's weird like the, the world or just the universe will just show it to you in that way totally and like yeah i love that you were already a, a young artist entrepreneur you know getting the getting the the lunch money right because yeah. um, I, I totally i remember that you know i couldn't draw as a kid but i i remember the um there was a kid in the class who was the kid who could draw and sure enough you know he's making his living making beautiful murals now um, around Washington State, and it was like it, he there'd be like a little line at his desk at lunchtime, you know, to be like, "Draw me a bunny," you know, <laughs> whatever they needed. So yeah, you're one of the art kids. It sounds like yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. And you also talk about like actually wrestling being kind of a part of your early influence and part of your young artistic development. Can you talk huge, about that? Huge part of my development. It's so funny when I talk about it because. I think people are like, wow, what a weird, untraced. <laughs> and it really was. I mean, I grew up in this house that was like this extended family. And I think a lot of people in the South and other places back then in the 70s grew up in these houses where there was like, you know, your aunt, uncle and mom and grandma. Everybody's in just one house. Yeah. And um, so it was me and a cousin of mine, my mom and her sister and their parents. It's just my grandparents were, you know, they were like, it was their house and they were like the ruler over the house. You know, one of the things that they always loved to do was watch wrestling. And back then, you know, it wasn't like now, like there's literally a TV in every room in my house that you turn to. Uh-huh. Like, two TVs in the house. There was like one in the living room, like the floor model. And there was like one in my grandparents' room. And you kind of had to watch what they were watching. Right. And they would watch wrestling and I just loved it. And, um, you know, and as a kid, you're always thinking about how this would translate to your world as a child. And, and so many cartoons that I love and TV shows, they were birthed more by toys. And so with wrestling, I was like, there's no way to play it. You know, other than physically wrestle at home or whatever. There's no way to be like, no, there's no toy to have. And um, so I started asking my mom who had like, you know, my mom had some pretty decent drawing skills at her like young age. And um, she would draw Ric Flair and Dusty Rose and Hulk Hogan and all these different wrestlers on paper and color them. And, and then I think one day she just kind of got fed up with it because I <laughs> cut them out and make these little paper dolls. And um, she was like, dude, you got to learn how to do it yourself. Like, <laughs> like wrestlers all the time. And so that kind of led me to doing it and like really trying to hone in on my drawing skills by drawing these wrestlers, which later turned in, you know, to me making cardboard belts for the neighborhood. Like I would make cardboard wrestling belts and I would super glue tin foil on them like the like it was the metal and then take a permanent marker and draw all the eagles and designs on them and, you know, put little slits in them so you can actually wear them. You know, we would go up and down and street wrestling for these belts amazing do any of the belts still exist i feel like they should be in the rashawn rutger archive you know <laughs> i think about making them sometimes now but i'm like 
man, they make real belts for little kids. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, but that was before. I mean, somebody who was in merchandising had the, the foresight to see that, you know, all kids want to hold up a little belt. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I used to get in trouble for it because I would use my grandmother's aluminum foil. And she was like, stop using my good foil to make belts for kids. Yeah, foil's like pricey. Yeah. <laughs> foil's expensive. And I, I don't even remember where I got the permanent markers from, but I had like the red, the blue, and the black. And that's, you know, the only thing that would really make a mark on foil. Mm-hmm. And um, I think my grandfather might have got them for me. And it was just, you know, then I got paid here and there for some belts. You know, it was just kind of my love for wrestling. And I guess wrestling itself is creative, you know, it's scripted. Oh, yeah. And it's an art to it in itself. And so that physical art became, you know, it manifests my visual art. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think just, you know, having that experience as a young person to say, I want this thing to exist in the world, and I'm going to find a way to manifest it, you know, to create it, uh, I think really is the seeds of, of what it is to be a grown-up human professional artist, is just yeah. having the vision and then trying to find how you get there. I love that you said that, because I just was telling somebody the other day, I said, I think people like artists because there's a little bit of magic to what we do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's something where there's nothing and turn it into something. You know, how many people can sit in front of a blank piece of paper and turn it into something and like something, you know, with some magic in it? And I think that's why I'm always like super grateful and like humble to even have this gift because mm-hmm. I'm like, you know, it's a little bit of magic that's out there in the world and we need, you know, all the magic we can get these days. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I think you're totally right. And that's, you know, particularly when people are not connected in any way to to the arts which is so common you know I've worked at commercial art galleries for 10 years and you tend to really be the face like the front the face where you're really uh, interacting with the public um, about art you know in a way that is really immediate um, maybe the most immediate out of all the kind of different elements that people have because you go into an art museum there's not someone sitting behind a desk saying do you have any questions right and Mm. And so it's talking with people as often as I do who don't have the background in art and who don't have any training in it. You know, they'll look at a painting and you can just tell they're just mystified by the process that went into it, depending on the painting, right? They're the minimalist ones where you do get the like, my son could have done that, you know, kind of talk. But but for a lot of the art that we show, it, it really is, I love the, the word for it is perfect. It's just, it's a kind of magic, I think. Um, and... And if you're not used to thinking about the world and like creating objects in it, like new beautiful objects, it seems really like, uh, yeah, like a wizard did it, I think. You know, without people like you and artists like me, um, I don't necessarily know where we would be at because we are on those front lines of what I call education. You know, mm-hmm. it's like you're constantly educating people about art and, you know, why it has value. and. Yeah. One of the big things that I'm always, you know, speaking about or trying, you know, to to make part of my practice continually is the education of people about the value of art and especially in communities of color. And I'm always about access. You know, any guy I work with will tell you that I'm the guy that they probably don't like necessarily <laughs> You know, I know where the market price is for my work, but I'm always a person that's going to make small work because I want the guy who drives the bus or the woman who's a social to be able to buy it. Yeah. Everybody should have access to art on some level. And so that's why I tend to make a lot of studies because I'm like, 
I want these to get, you know, to be accessed by people who might not be able to buy a large piece of work. Because I think back to my childhood, I didn't really have access to art other than making it myself mm-hmm. to an art museum. So I think I might have been in college. Like there was just there was none around me. There was no there was no art museum to go to. Mm-hmm. Well, that's very important for me to give people access. And, you know, you, you can't really be what you can't see. Mm-hmm. And I always think about that little kid that was like me. I'm like, well, now that little kid can see me and other people. And so I'm always like, you know, even like a lot of like young kids, I give drawings to a prince too. Because I'm like, mm-hmm. you can do this. This is not. I'm not doing anything that you can't inspire to be. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. It's and and having yeah, be, having worked in a gallery, I'm definitely not one of the gallerists who mind at all when my artists say like I want to make some smaller work, so I want to go do an edition of prints, you know, with Landfall Press, which is, you know, who we have here in Santa Fe or Black Rock Editions. It's which is what sort of the the newest evolution of of Landfall. Um because it's so exciting to me to be able to connect people with art when they think it's not for them. Um, and I think that's one of like the really, really disservices that popular culture has done to contemporary fine art is when you see art on television or in movies, it's astronomical prices, it's millionaires, it's like unfriendly gallerists, it's yeah. this this really like heavy sense of elitism. And I just, it really bums me out because I I want, as you said, like bus drivers, social workers, like anyone to feel like this is for me by virtue of the fact that I'm a human being in the world. I get to have art in my life. Yeah. Art is for you simply because you exist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that's one of my, my major, like, I guess something that grinds my gears about the art world is that I think we've been conditioned over time to look at it as a very elitist persnickety type of thing where people have, you know, their nose in the air and it's, you can't, you know, you can't approach it. You know, I was talking uh, to someone and they were like telling me how like they wanted to get something and they couldn't get access to it. And I was like, well, are you trying to get access to it because you think it's going to make, you know, whatever your collection is more valuable? Are you trying to get access to it because you love it? You know, I tell people all the time, like, buy what you love. Don't chase the great, you know, the great white whale. Mm-hmm. Like, I was appealing to you because I always tell people that, like, I want to buy what I love. I want to buy in the sense of I'm never going to flip it or sell it. I just want to buy something. I'm like, no matter what happens, I know I can live with this forever because I feel that much joy when I see it. And, you know, I just think that we've turned it into, like you said, this very elitist thing. And, you know, you got to be on the scene because people sometimes in Detroit will say, man, I don't see you out. You're not on the scene. And I'm like, what? I'm like, what scene are you talking about? I'm like, I ain't on the scene because I'm making work. Mm-hmm. I'm doing what I love. Like I tell people all the time, like when you see my work in a gallery, that's for you. It's not for me. My joy is in the making. I'm a maker. Like what you see on the wall is for you. Mm, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, oh, I just had like three different thoughts about what you were saying. Like they got like all stuck at the same time <laughs> trying to come out. But yeah, I, I just I, I love that. And, and it's I feel like people can't hear enough by what you love because we, you know, I'm at a gallery right now where we we represent, um, you know, a lot of museum collected artists, and and so we have a lot of conversations about like, well, if I get this, like, tell me like major acquisitions that are on the horizon that's going to raise its value. And I just want to say, yeah. just if you love it, if you truly love it with 
all of your being, you could be told next week it's worth the paper it's printed on and it will change nothing for you. And that like that's the joy of having art in your life is what can't be taken away is that you connect with it. Or I find that like I I buy work that reminds me of something I love about myself. Like I see it and it affirms for me like, oh, yeah, like I'm the kind of person who likes a really weird Paul Wunderlich lithograph. Like I like that about myself and I see it and it, it makes me feel good and I, I find it really beautiful. And that lithograph could be worth zero dollars tomorrow and I would still be happy every time I see it. And it, you can't take that away. Yeah. I think whatever you're kind of buying should be totally representational of who you are as a person. I mean, sometimes I look around my house, the art I have, and I'm like, man, it's all printmaking and drawing. But guess mm-hmm. what? That's dude, That's what I love. I'm yeah. like, I'm going to always like gravitate towards that because I'm like, I'm, I love mark making and that's what I want to mm-hmm. see. Mm-hmm. So, that's what I buy. And, you know, the biggest thing that like always like makes me cringe is when I'm at my framer sometimes. <laughs> like, I usually, he has a, a booking frame business. So, I come in there, we've been working together for 20 years. I just kind of step back every time a regular, another customer comes in because I'm like, I can be here all day. Like, we got to really work through, he might be framing an entire show. Right. Sometimes I'm just like standing off to the side and I'm listening to people and they're like trying to match art to a couch. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I want to just run over there and be like, do not buy this because you have a red couch. <laughs> like, <laughs> buy this because you love it. You know, don't frame things like, None of the frames match anything in my house. None of the art matches anything. It's just like salon style. I'm like, I love it, you know. But I always, when I hear that, I'm like, you know, because it, it just reminds me of, you know, pe- even people in my family and growing up, people are like, well, this is, I'm like, nothing has to match. Mm-hmm. Like, we've been conditioned that it has to match. It doesn't have to match. Yeah. All, that, all you have to do is like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you'll, you'll never be disappointed. Yeah. Good. So when did printmaking come into your story did you find it in art school did were you exposed to it before that and and how did it kind of um, capture your imagination i would say college i went to north carolina central university which is a historically black college in durham north carolina and i would say there but i would also say because i just didn't know like doing things in middle school and high school i wouldn't we didn't do much printmaking in high school, but middle school, you know, we all did the thing where, like, our teacher, Kathy Williams, she gave us the white potato and you cut it yeah. in half and then you carve something in there. You dip it in some egg tempera paint and then you make stamps and you do things with shoestrings and stuff. But you don't know that's printmaking. Right. Like, nobody told me that was printmaking. I just thought it was like, oh, we made stamps out of a potato and it was cool. Yeah. It was more so when I got into college and I had to take my first printmaking class. And I want, I want to say, like, it was a convergence of two classes that made me really love printmaking. It was, at the time, I was taking printmaking one and I was taking African-American art history. And so it literally was taking that class and then seeing the work of a cat lit and Charles White at this mm-hmm. hell Woodruff. And I'm like, I want to do this. Yeah. I love this. I, I, um, I fell in love with it. And printmaking to me, because drawing was always my first love, I tell everybody I know, I'm like, printmaking is drawing with a knife. Uh-huh. Same thing to me. Like printmaking is just drawing to me. It's just drawing with a different tool. And so that's why I fell in love with it. And because just like when you're drawing your mark making and printmaking, your hand is all in it. Like every good mark, every bad mark is totally representational of your hand. And I remember like one of my friends was like, oh, man, we got this CNC machine and you should like bring in one of your drawings and we'll rasterize it and we'll do the woodcut and the CNC thing. I'm like, I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Cause then it's perfect. Yeah, it's my hand is no longer in it. 
like my joy is the physicality and the redacting of the linoleum and like understanding how I feel when I'm making it. And I just loved it. Like, and I think I loved how frustrating it was because uh-huh. you can make one cut and ruin the whole damn thing. And yeah. you'd be like, God, I gotta start over. <laughs> it was, I could get into a space where I could, it was almost like outer body when I was carving. Like, you know, I guess that was a very uh, early version of these like um, satisfying videos. My kids be watching people scooping ice cream or whatever. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> I was having, you know, my, my, I guess, you know, ASMR thing just like in the most manual way you could have it and just carving. Mm, yeah. I've heard that a lot, particularly from artists who, who do a lot of relief work. Um, that that they the most favorite part of what they do is the carving. And I'm married to a printmaker who, uh, in his undergrad, he did you know like six foot woodcuts, and he would just you know hours and hours and hours just like put headphones in and just disappear into the carving. Or I had um, Caledonia Curry on a few episodes ago and, you know, and she was saying that like the drawing is like just kind of preparing for the carving, which is where the real like joy and kind of meditative state comes from. So I always wonder if, yeah, there's some kind of through line for artists who were drawn to the carving process almost as a kind of escapism or getting into a flow state or a way to just um, have a a meditation. And then on the other side of it, you've got a work of art. I call it the hallelujah moment. Yeah, yeah. I call it when you can't hear anything, you kind of like necessarily like almost not even there. It's just your arm working. Mm -hmm. You can't make any bad cuts. You just got into this real zone. And, you know, I always say like, and it sounds crazy, but I told my friend, I said, when I find that space, that's when I feel like I'm closest to God. Mm -hmm. Like that I'm doing exactly what I was put on earth to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I had a, uh, uh, someone in my cohort in grad school. I did an MA in art history, so not not in the making, but you know, in the talking about it. And uh, but she was studying um, like repetitive artistic practices as a form of devotion. And she, you know, everything from like nuns and convents who would weave and weave and weave these incredible tapestries, um, you know, to carvers and sculptors and. It's I think that there's really something there when because when you get into those flow states, it's like the ego disappears. And and that is, I think, when human beings are the closest to their God, you know, is because it's like it's not the like that selfish narrative of like, this is what I look like. This is what I need to do. It's just like I am in existence and I am creating something. And it's truly transcendent moments. And and I I think that either people get it or they don't, you know, and I try to explain it to them. But I've definitely had it and I've, I've known people who, who do and it. It's beautiful. It's it's a it's a little touch of the divine in our real life. Yeah. I, I really believe in that because I've always had that sense when I was making things and doing those repetitive things. I mean, I guess I would say it's similar to, I mean, I don't do it, but it's similar to people I know who run and they get that runner's high. Right, yeah. It's like, because you're just like so much wrapped up in your passion at that moment. And that's what I was saying in the very beginning was like, that's my joy. Like, 
What's on the wall is not my joy. The joy is in the carving. It's in the making. It's because immediately when I'm done, I want to move on to the next thing so I can get back to uh-huh. that feeling. Yeah. You know, that's why I don't I go, but I'm not, I'm not necessarily ever like overjoyed about shows and openings. Because mm-hmm. this is for you. Like, I already seen all of this. I made it. <laughs> like, I was like at the highest of the high when I made it. Like, I just want you to enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. I could, that's, it's so funny, but I, I can completely see that is that it's, um, yeah. Like, I love that. You're like, you're like, I've already seen all this. <laughs> I'm nice there for it. And yeah. But, you know, it's, it's part of the, the artist's life is showing up at your own openings and, you know, hobnobbing I'm, and all of that. It's, it's, it's part of it. Although, le- you know, less so in the last two years, um, I mean, I, of course. Because I just know, like, that's part of my, that's part of my bargain with the gallery. That's the price mm-hmm. of doing this. Like, I know I can only help them if I show up and do what I'm supposed to do. You know, it's never like, it's never my favorite thing because you're exhausted at the end of it because you're like, man, I've answered the same question 55 times. <laughs> right. And, but it's like, you know, you know, you kind of like owe it to the gallery and the galleries. But also what I do enjoy about it is educating people. Yeah. That's what I enjoy about it. You know, not necessarily trying to sell anything, just educating people about why it's important and why they should care. And not necessarily care about my work, but just care about art in general. Yeah, yeah. And do you find that you get a lot of opportunities to do that? I mean, do people come to the openings at your galleries with a a kind of openness to be educated? Yeah. That's great. I, I, I'm like standing in a corner a lot of times in the back <laughs> with like a line of people in front of me. And I'm like, man, I got like 12 people in front of me, like waiting with a question. And so you're kind of just like educating, you know, to the best of your ability. It's almost like speed dating. It's like, mm-hmm. how can I give everybody a little bit of what they need and what they want? And, and then sometimes there are some, there are, there's a person or, you know, a couple or whoever who want to buy something, but they just want to hear your input on it. Right. Like they want to have that moment with the artist before they commit to buying. Yeah, I know those ones. Yeah. (laughs) My life was like they're on the fence and literally was going to tip the tip over is your moment with them and telling them about what it means. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of so sometimes it's that, you know, but mostly it is education. People want to know how you did it. It's the same thing as when you when the musician cuts the, the woman in half in the box. It's like, well, how did he do that? Yeah. Like, I want to know. <laughs> so people want to know. They want to know, like, what you were doing, you know, and you kind of, you know, I think having that moment with the artist is your chance, like the Wizard of Oz, to pull the curtain back a mm-hmm. little bit. Mm-hmm. Say this is how I did it, and especially with printmaking, because a lot of times people don't really understand what they're looking at. Like especially with relief printmaking, and I'm like, I end up usually explaining to them like, this is a gigantic stamp. Uh huh. Somebody puts like paid and stamps on a piece of paper. It's almost the exact same thing. I'm like, that's just one that's been commercially made. Like this is me carving out something and then stamping it into a piece of paper. Yeah. 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 I think that that's, that's one of, if they haven't done the potato stamp in high school, that's the best one. That's when I would have to describe it. I'd be like, do you remember doing potatoes in high school? Like I do bring it back to that because a lot of people did. I mean, that's a very iconic high school class experience. And then I'm like, so, you know, times that by a few hundred thousand and that's, you know, what you're seeing today. (laughs) Yeah. This is just the kid who kept using the potato stamp. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Couldn't get enough of it. Well, 
you know, speaking of, of questions that I know you've answered over and over and over again, but I, I do hope you don't mind answering one more time. Anything. Yeah, it's this, the story of the pigeons, um, because I do think that, that that moment when you kind of felt that connection with them, which I've, I've heard you tell in many different interviews, but I hope you don't mind telling it one more time, because I think it is a really um, poignant and significant story. And, and of course, they are such a a reoccurring theme in your work. Yeah, um, I just kind of started out like I'm. My practice is very research based. Like I'm anybody who follows me or knows me personally knows my house is like covered in books. Mm-hmm. Like I love the I love the research things. Um, and I wanted to do a book about conditioning, conditioning like black men in America, and trying to figure out how to speak to it in a different way. And I did all this reading and this research, and I was like, yeah, it's. It's still not there. It's got to be something that I need to like approach. I wanted to figure out how to develop a different visual vocabulary to speak about conditioning. And um, it really was like making a studio visit with one of my friends, another Detroit artist, Tiff Massey. And she was like, you got to just find an everyday thing and try to explain it through that lens. And um, I kept thinking about it, thinking about it. Nothing was coming to me and was walking to work one day on the sidewalk. And there was a span, like a gaggle of pigeons. Mm-hmm. Who were eating. And I was trying to get through them because there was no only way to get around them was like to literally walk in the street downtown, which was not a good idea either. And um, so and I'm a big guy, you know, I'm like six, two, six, three, like close to 300 pounds. So I'm like walking through the middle of the pigeons and they weren't moving. And I had to kind of swipe at them with my foot. And they didn't fly away. They just kind of like moved over a little bit. And I was like, man, I hate pigeons. They're like always in the way and bothersome. And I was like, oh, my God. I was like, some people probably hate pigeons. I mean, pay black men the same way. And so then it became me just like trying to do research and becoming what I call like a bootleg ornithologist, like trying to learn <laughs> I could about pigeons and their behavior. And then that's when I started coming across all of these kind of factoids about, wow, pigeons are native to America. I would have never known that because it's literally probably the most common bird that anybody sees. Totally, yeah. <laughs> You're like, so the bird I see the most is not native to here. And they were bought over in the 1600s around the same time that transatlantic slavery commenced. And, you know, they were, I mean, they're pretty much like native to like parts of Europe and Africa and some parts of Asia. And um, they came over here, I guess, you know, and in some ways in servitude, you know, as a, as a cheap meat, you know, um, some, you know, came as messengers over time. And then the more research I started doing, I was like, wow, you know, a pigeon within like a month or so of its birth, wherever it's added imprints is that is home to it. Mm-hmm. And it never wants to leave home like a pigeon would almost die trying to get back home. And you think about, you know, people coming over on a boat, you know, from Africa, and, you know, as part of slavery or chattel. And it's like you have to adapt almost immediately. Like this is now where I'm at. This is my environment. And this is imprinted on me. And it's that same type of conditioning where it's like even in that worst space, you almost can't even imagine how to leave or how to get out because it's now impressed upon you. And, you know. Just thinking about all of those different things and just, you know, I think sometimes people look at like blackness as this monolith and it's really like a spectrum. Mm-hmm. Kind of the way you look at a pigeon, like you just see a gray pigeon. But if you ever get real close to it, you see the purples and the blues and the greens and like this iridescence and the feathers. Like you see the beauty of it. Mm-hmm. And I, sometimes you can't really have a relationship with something from far away. You have to have a tangible connection to it. And I think a lot of times in America, there's no tangible connection to black people or people of color. 
because it's been viewed with a fixed lens. And this is what I know. And this is what I know because this is what my mother told me. And this is what their dad told them. And so you never have a genuine connection and you never have, you never develop any type of empathy that tends to develop between humans in general. And so just thinking about those things and then going further and thinking about, you know, trap shooting or skeet shooting and how they were using these birds for like target practice. And, you know, they almost did it to the pigeons extinction. And that's when they came with clay pigeons they used for target practice. And it's like, imagine being a bird who's put in this trap and that's what they call it a trap because it's like a little cage and the door is lifted and you're like, oh my God, I'm out. As soon as you fly out, you don't realize there's a guy with a gun standing on the left of you that's tracking you in the air to kill you as a sport and not ever thinking about your value as a living thing. And so some of my latest work has been, you know, working with me making my own clay pigeons with the faces of black men. And most of them have been broken and scattered throughout galleries. And just talking about, you know, being a person that's being able to evade and get through these obstacles, even in a sport, they call a missed shot, a bird away. Hmm. Just thinking how few actually get to get away and how many are actually broken. That installation was called I Hit More Than I Missed. Right. Yeah. There was only three pigeons on the wall and there were dozens and dozens of them broken everywhere. And so a lot of times I think growing up, especially people of color, it's like I felt like... I was that person that got away and got out of that neighborhood because I was in a neighborhood that was filled with redlining and food deserts and all those different things that tend to trap people who are existing below the poverty line. And art kind of was my avenue to get away. But, you know, doing the work is always, you know, my thing about doing that work, I always wanted to make it an educational thing where when you see it, it's always about, you know, what role do you play in this system? Are you helping somebody escape or are you putting somebody in a cage? And wanting to like press upon people like it's not about necessarily you ever buying a piece of work or a bird or a drawing. It's about from this point on after seeing that, where are you going to put your line in the sand? And are you going to make more of an effort to get to know people as humans? You know, it's also one of those things that me and my friends talk about um, in nature. And the word is escaping me, but it's it's when you see an animal with a certain color like a red or a yellow, or you see a red frog. It's called a poem. It's like the color is to give the sense of danger to a predator. Because it's like, oh, I know I should leave that frog alone because it's not green. Something is inherently going on. And I think a lot of times, like just since 16, 19, like our skin has been used as a sense of opposmatism where it's been labeled as danger. And, you know, I would always tell one of my old co-workers, you know, she would say, well, you've accomplished these things and you've won Emmys and you've done all this and done all that. And, my, and I was like, nobody knows that when they see me. Yeah. My skin greets them well before my resume. You know, they see giant black guy walking towards them. And I've definitely had all those experiences where people are like coward in the corner in the elevator or they cross the street and you know, they see you coming. And I'm like, I don't want you. I'm the last thing you should be worried about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just going to the store. Yeah. And it's just, you know, making work that kind of speaks to that. And I wanted to use the pigeon because sometimes when you make work that has a heavy context to it like that, people don't ever want to look at it. They don't want to confront it. And so the pigeon in some ways almost made it whimsical. You know, people came in when I first started doing, they were looking at them like, 
oh, this is like some Harry Potter, like <laughs> Phoenix Griffin. Uh-huh. They know what it was about. Yeah. And so they really leaned into it. And when they leaned into it, it gave me a chance to really hit them with the context of it. And then it became heavy. But part of it is you got to get people in the room to reckon with it. And so I was like really happy to find a narrative that like, you know, gave some sense of whimsical, but also still had the heaviness. You know, I was able to make, as I tell people, a sharp butter knife. Hmm. And so that that was kind of how it started. And that was the journey. And I'm still working, you know, in that narrative um, of what I call American unearthology um, a lot more now installation based and mixed media. Yeah, because I think um, I saw a, a footage of you doing the the clay pigeon installation where you're actually breaking the plates yourself in the gallery um, oh, yeah. with them hanging on the wall. And it's it's just the sound of the, the shattering plates. It's just like really effective and like it's a really powerful piece. Yeah. Gunshots, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, you saw it, but the first one I broke, it kind of scared me because <laughs> I didn't know it was going to sound like that. Yeah. And I kind of back up a little bit like, ooh. Mm-hmm. And it felt wasn't, you know, people were like, was that cathartic? I'm like, not really. It was kind of triggering. Yeah. You know, I, I thought it might be cathartic, but it was like more triggering to break them because you're hearing the sounds, but you're also seeing all the broken faces and it's making you think about all the broken people that you know who have been broken, a lot of them unjustly through the system. And so it definitely like was not therapeutic as I thought it might be. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's part of the artistic process is that you can have your plans, but you really don't know what you're going to get out of it as an individual and as a person until you're actually in the weeds of doing or making. And it's still an exploration and and something that you can't control. Yeah. Yeah. So who, who are the subjects of your pieces? You do a lot of just, you know, really beautiful portraiture mixed with these images. Um, Are they friends? Are they family? And how do you go about finding and 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 drawing um, the people in your work? Um, some of them are friends. Some of them are people I've just photographed in the streets, and then some of them are collages of police mug shots. Mm-hmm. And it's like I've collaged them because I wanted to make you know a statement using the mug shots, but I also didn't want to like single one person out. Right. Yeah. And um, but a lot of them are my friends, because some of the first thoughts I had about this was just people I knew. And it was, you know, kind of started with a weird conversation with a friend of mine one time. And um, I came over to his house and we were talking. And he's like, what are you about to do? I was like, about to go get some dinner at um, P.F. Chang's. And I was like, mm-hmm. you want to? He was like, sure. And we were driving to P.F. Chang's, but it's outside of Detroit. It's in uh, Livonia in a suburb. And we got like about 90% of the way. And he was like, I've never been out here. Where are we at? And I'm like, dude, you've been living in the city for like 35 years. You've never been out here. And then it just made me start to think about that condition and where you're like, and not to be in places that you're quote unquote not welcomed, mm-hmm. you know. And it's it's like, and I was telling him like, man, you need to just get in your car and go explore. And I'm like, there's no such thing as a place you don't belong. You belong just because you're a human. But we've put so many labels on things in America and having this kind of invisible caste system, even though it's very visible, but people never want to acknowledge it. You know, I was posting something the other day just because it was, you know, it was like a very poignant video to the point I'm always making. And it was like Mitch McConnell was speaking and he was like, African-American voters are voting, you know, in a much larger percentage than Americans. And I'm like, 
but uh, we were mad. Yeah. I'm sorry, what, Mitch? Yeah. <laughs> it was like those are those things, like these little conditioning things, like you're like basically not even seeing African Americans as Americans. Like I feel like almost anything that's not white is hyphenated. Yeah. And and so it's kinda like you're making work to battle those things. And it, you know, and that's kind of where it came from. It's just that little trip with my friend and being like, Man, you never went to this restaurant because you felt like you didn't belong out here. And I'm like, if you go on with that train of thought, then you won't feel like you belong anywhere. You know, like one of the the quotes I always talk about in some of my reading is Carter G. Woodson wrote this book called The Miseducation of the Negro. And his whole thing was, if you send a person through the back door long enough, they'll build their own back door. They won't ever know to not do it because if you can control their mind, you can control their actions. And that's what he talks about. And so a lot of what I'm doing you know, it's talking about that that trapping of, you know, someone's mindset. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and you know, listening to you, you talk about all of it, it, it makes me think about, you know, that um, all that dialogue about, you know, that like the default space in the U.S. is a, is a white space. And yes. then we carve out other spaces for African-Americans and Asian-Americans and queer Americans. And um, and then, you know, it's these little islands and and it really is is speaks to what you're saying about, you know, the pigeons kind of implanting or um, imprinting on where they were born. And then also, you know, how the art world is such like dominantly a white space, art galleries and museums. um, You know, you look at boards and you look at directors and of course it's changing as it should. But, um, you know, talking about accessibility as we were kind of at the top of the hour, I think that that's really significant as well is 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 just because an art gallery is free and open to the public seven days a week does not mean that every human thinks that it's for them um and that's not a coincidence you know it's not it's not a mistake that's the 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 societal programming going back hundreds of years about you know what is what is who is luxury for you know because art is seen as a luxury and who is um what is uh um you know like aesthetic pleasure for who is that for um and so yeah just kind of by by going into these spaces and putting your work on the walls i mean that's counter to that narrative as well i was um having a conversation yesterday with a a art manager and you know we were talking and i was telling him about like what you were just saying some of these boards are changing you know what museums are collecting is different in some in some spaces not all but I was telling him, like, what if George Floyd didn't get murdered? Would they be buying this work? Because I can pinpoint that to, like, the very turn when people started posting Black Squares on Instagram and trying to change things. But it shouldn't take something like that. And people are like, oh, you know, Black art is such on trend. I'm like, that's because most spaces, institutional spaces, museums, like 2% of their collection is that. Yeah. So they're trying to catch up. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I know at some point when they feel like we've spent enough to absolve guilt or whatever, it'll go back to what it was. Because just like they're hiring all these people, I've also seen a huge uptick in all in black curators leaving spaces and institutions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, And I think because, I don't know, I mean, I, I never want to like say I know what someone's motivations are for that sort of thing. But I was talking to someone who went down to Miami for Art Week and, you know, at a dinner and and some curator was there saying, you know, oh, it's just, 
you can just tell it's like such a trend. It's like you go into these fairs and it's just like every single work is by a black artist. And I said, yeah. And forever, it, every single work was by a white artist. And nobody thought that was weird. <laughs> you know? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> um, you know. That, oh, yeah. that's what makes America the complex, beautiful place that it is. Like, because there's such different sides. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's like you said, like I remember looking at fairs like years ago and you could like literally you look at the entire fair roster and you're like, man, they're like maybe four women artists and maybe yeah. two color. Mm-hmm. Entire roster that's fair. <laughs> and no one thought that, you know, I think people were just like, well, we met our quota. Yeah. yeah. We're good. Yeah. And so like, you know, let's just have good art. How about that? Yeah. Absolutely. The people who are making significant art that's, ma- that's questioning things and, you know, captivating minds and challenging the status quo. How about everybody who's doing that type of work just get their chance? Mm-hmm. There's nothing with that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's it's like everything. It's going to be a mix and it's going to be complicated. And, um, you know, there are going to be people who I think have a very genuine kind of awakening and realizing that I've been ignoring art done by non-white artists. And that will be a really genuine change in the way that they curate, right? The the gatekeepers um, is who I'm sort of speaking of. of Like, who goes in the shows? Who goes to the fairs? Who goes in the catalogs? Who gets collected? The people who are making those decisions. I'm sure some of them, it's like, yeah, it's a very... Um, genuine realization of of overlooking just incredible talent to the detriment of their collections as well. You know, I mean, even if they do it for purely selfish reasons, like you're going to have a better collection if you're collecting from more diverse range of people. But I'm sure there are people who are doing it because they, you know, just don't want to get in trouble. And they're like, they're like, oh, well, if I don't start this, I'll, I'll, Someone will um, will not like me, or I I won't get the funding that I want. But hopefully, there'll be more of the former than the latter, and you know we will see a change. But I think only kinda, only time will tell. Tell people all the time here, and I'm like, don't ask me to speak about art during Black History Month. Like I'm the yeah. same all year round. Like I get that all the time. February comes, the phone starts ringing. Really. Like, you know, I can actually talk about print making and drawing. Other <laughs> here. That's you know, awful. I kind of stopped doing it because I just, over years, I was like, oh, this is a thing. Mm-hmm. Like, this is what we're going to do for Black History Month and these institutions and gap. I'm like, I'm going to be the same artist no matter what. So I should be able to speak all through the year whenever you have all types of programming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's, it's a huge turn, you know, to get people to think differently. You know, I used to have a boss who would always tell me it's like trying to turn a cruise ship on a dime. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to make a gigantic circle to really turn it. And so it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of the gatekeepers to say, you know, we were wrong and this is how we should be collecting. This is how we should be showing. This is how we should be writing. And like you said, put in these catalogs, because that's one of the major things that I always think about now. It's like, you know, you want to get in these catalogs. Every exhibit I've done in the last couple of years, I'm like, I made the gallery make a catalog because I'm like, this way there's provenance. Like you can't erase, yeah. you can't erase anything I did. There's a tangible thing floating around that talks about this work. 
And that's important. Yeah, it's you are being, um, you're in the archive then. You know, like the, the physicality of catalogs, I think, completely agree, is, is hugely important because digital technology uh, is going to change and adapt and evolve. And, you know, the photos that you're taking now, like who knows if they'll be able to be played on devices in 50 years. Um, that's going to evolve. But a printed catalog, if it's, if particularly if you can get a high number of them produced, it's like it's like printmaking. You know, we've got so many prints from history because they're physical and because they were multiples, so they had a chance of surviving. So, you know, we've got an incredible amount of Ulbrechter's woodcuts over his paintings because that's just like like survival by multiplicity. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think in the in the bit of the time we've got left, I'd love for you to talk to your experience of having a studio in your own house and making work, you know, while being an active full-time dad as well. And how, you know, we said before we jumped on that, you know, you've got work in the Smithsonian that you made on your sofa. And I just love that about your practice um, because you have this just incredible draftsmanship, this incredible precision in beauty and the images that you make. And they're so um, almost sort of classical in their rendering that I think maybe some people might imagine that, you know, you're in a, a light-filled studio <laughs> overlooking the water or something, but you're at home and you're with your family while you do it. Yeah, I think people always think that, you know, they're just like, because they're like almost, even though they're they're not in that same approach, but they're almost like these Western classical type of drawings. Mm -hmm. people just think i got like some three thousand square foot <laughs> light field you know studio and i'm like no i'm working on a couch and the paper is taped to gator board and i'm drawing on my lap and i'm turning the paper and the board around and so over the years i've gotten really adept at drawing upside down and like drawing back you know just drawing all types of different ways but i think part of it is you know, as we as we spoke about before, and I think we might have been offline, but having two sons and having one with special needs is on the spectrum. I kind of need to be home. It was one of those things where it was like, you know, you got a kid that's 14 and still in, you know, diapers and you're still feeding them. You can't really just go like, I'm going to go off to the studio for 10 hours. Yeah. And so over time, I've always just made work on my couch. I mean, it wasn't until the last year that I actually put a drafting table in the living room. I was just always working on a couch. And now I've kind of converted it fully to a studio where it's just a few bookshelves full of a bunch of books on art and different things that I enjoy, artists I enjoy, uh, a ton of toys because I collect toys and I love toys. And that probably goes all the way back to my love for wrestling and drawing. It's not so much the toy or who is it's more like the design behind it. Like somebody drew this, somebody figured out the colors, somebody, you know, everything is art. That's how I kind of, oh, approach, yeah. you know, I'm looking at my this fish tank in my room now and I'm like, somebody drew that fish tank before it was a fish tank mm -hmm. and designed it. And so that's kind of how I look at it. But, you know, one of the other pluses about working like that, even though it can be crippling sometimes working at home is like I could work all night and just get up and go to bed. Right. Yeah. Like I get up from some building far away from my house and drive home. You know, sometimes I'm in there like last night. It was like 430 in the morning. I was like, you know what? It's time to stop painting. And I just got up and I went in the other room and went to sleep. Yeah. You know, and I'm not putting anybody in danger because I'm not driving home sleepy, you know, in the middle of the night. 
you know, in, you know, very cold, snowy weather in Detroit. And it also just allows me, you know, to keep an eye on my sons. And I think I'm always inspired by them in little ways. You know, I think some of my drawing practice is inspired by having a son on the spectrum because he's taught me over the years to be like the most patient person. Mm -hmm. Drawing and printmaking is all about patience. You know, carving is all about patience and making the right cuts and like being very meticulous in how you execute these things. And a lot of my friends who are painters, they always tell me, I don't know how you're drawing like that because I don't have the patience to do that because you really can't speed up a pencil. Now you could take a wide brush and like fill in a background really quick with paint. But you can't do that with a pencil. It's like you really have to nurture it. And I think some of that is a byproduct of having to nurture my son mm-hmm. and just really patient. I mean, right before I got on with you, I was in the store and this lady was like, you've been waiting for 40 minutes. Is everything OK? Like, you know, and I was like, yeah, I'm just waiting on this chicken for my son. And she was like, you're like the most patient person. And I'm like, lady, waiting on chicken is like the least of my problems. <laughs> <laughs> like, like what good is it going to do for me to be screaming and yelling at you who cooking chicken for my son to hurry up? Yeah. You know, I I just think you learn, especially when you get older, that, you know, life requires grace. Relationships require grace. You know, you require grace to yourself. You know, you should be required to give grace to yourself. Because there's times when I make drawings and make things that I don't love. And I have to be able to tell myself, it's okay. You're still, you know, learning. That never ends. You know, my 12-year-old was an amazing draw, you know, artist for his age. He's better than I was at 12. Hmm. And he he always gets upset when he messes up a drawing and he balls it up. And he'll be like, I can't draw like you. And I said, I'm 44. I'm still balling up paper. <laughs> Ball up paper every day. I was like, that's what's great about art because you never know everything. You only get better. You only keep learning. You know, it's one of the other things I love about being an artist. You never truly retire. You just make until you can't make anymore. And I love that. Like, I think about that all the time. Like, a lot of people are going to retire from something. I'm just going to keep doing it until I can't. Yeah, I can't think of a more beautiful note to close our conversation on um, than that. Yeah, very wise words about the patience that art making, particularly drawing and, you know, drawing to the level that you do takes and that artists are really lucky to be on a journey that there is not an endpoint. Um, I think that's, yeah, really beautiful. So thank you so much, Rashawn, for, for joining me. Um, like I said, I've, I've really wanted to chat with you for a while and it really was just delightful and beautiful. And um, I really appreciate you you letting me borrow an hour of your time. Thank you. Thank you for even having me on your wish list. I had no, I, I had no idea, you know, you never know who's looking at your work or whatever. And this was such an amazing conversation and delightful hour. And I just appreciate you for even thinking of me. If you like today's episode, we have a Patreon, where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content. Things like Shop Talk Shorts with our editor, Timothy Pauschak, who digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with our guests. And if you've listened this far, you might be that special kind of print friend who would leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. It would mean the world to us if you did, and it really does help support the show. Join me again next week when my guest will be Jaron Schmeitz, founder of The Jaunt a project that combines our favorite things, travel and printmaking. The Jaunt sends artists on short trips somewhere around the world that they have never been before, and then publishes an edition based on their experiences. We'll talk about how skateboarding and graffiti brought Yaron into the world of art, 
the logistical joys and pains of taking on such a project, and what happens to you when a global pandemic strikes and you've got an artist on a silent retreat in a Sri Lankan monastery. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.